Where the last time I preached here, a couple of weeks ago. This morning we'll look at James 1, verses 5 to 8. As you at the chapel know so well, uh, my preaching was not based on what I thought the church needed to hear. I was never smart enough to know that. I just preached through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book after book after book after book. And I loved preaching some books and I struggled like crazy preaching some books. But I preached book after book because of the conviction that if you preach through the Bible, you'll end up with the same emphasis the Bible has. I hope that was true. Now I'm retired and I have no, re no regular preaching schedule. So what should drive it now? Well, I'm going to preach when I have the opportunity um, from texts that mean a lot to me. Texts from which I learned in the crucible of life about the Lord. So with that introduction, I invite you, your hearts back to James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Let me read it. If any lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord endures forever. There are two powerful lessons in this little passage. And the first is this. God will give you the wisdom you need. God will give you the wisdom you need. You know, there are many things in the Bible that we just frankly don't understand very well. Don't make much sense to us. But there are other things which we cannot live without. And verse 5 is one of those essential things. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. God promises to give us the wisdom we need. So when uh, do we need wisdom? Well, you can say all the time, but uh, James here addresses it in the context of the troubles that he talked about in the verses right before. He links this to what is said about trials by repeating the word lack. In verse 4 we have, so that you may be mature and complete, complete, not lacking anything, verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom. In the midst of your trouble, you may lack wisdom. You see, trials test and toughen our faith, but they also expose our lack of wisdom. When trouble comes, right after we ask the question, why, 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 we come up with another question that says, so what am I supposed to do now? I don't know which way to turn. How am I going to handle this? In the middle of our trouble, we need wisdom. Wisdom from the same God who holds the reins of our trials. And that's the promise of this text. God will give you the wisdom you need. Now, before you go too far into that, let me just make clear some things that God is not saying in this promise. He, is, does, he does not promise to give us some new revelation, some vision, some supernatural message, some angel visitation. No, we don't know wisdom that way. 
God promises no such voice from heaven, no such impossible miracles, but God does promise to give us the wisdom we need. Nor does God promise to make our decisions for us. Nope, we still have to dig in the facts and agonize over the alternatives, weigh the biblical principles, consider the consequences of each option, and make the tough decision. God does not take away that responsibility. He made us in his image and he gave us a will to exercise and exercise it we must. But in the process, he promises he will give us the wisdom we need. He also does not promise to make us infallible. He does not guarantee that we will make no mistakes we will make mistakes. We're human. But God directs us, even through our mistakes, working out his perfect plan for us and teaching us how to learn from the mistakes of the past. God gives us the wisdom that we need, even though we're, we have all kinds of foibles. Neither is his promise of wisdom a tool to silence the critics. Those who would help us by pointing out the deficiencies of our thinking, thinking we cannot just say to them, well, the Lord led me. End of discussion. No, the Lord commands us to listen to advisors, to answer our opponents, to give an account of our, of our choices, to learn from our mistakes. That's how he leads us. But through it all, he promises to give us the wisdom we need. You see, for the child of God indwelt by the Spirit of God, searching the Word of God... There is more to the decision-making process than just the sum of our research, plus some good luck, plus being in the right place at the right time. No, God promises to direct our thinking, to bring into our lives the right influences, to providentially guide the whole process, to close doors as well as open doors, to open our minds to his word as we study, to enlighten us by the work of his Holy Spirit in us, so that in the end, we will prove to be wise to have acted with the wisdom that was beyond our years. That's God's pleasure to give us the wisdom we need. So how do we know he will do this? Well, we find three grounds for this in, in, in verse 5. The first is, he'll do this because God is a giving God. We know that God will give us wisdom we need because it is his nature to give. Literally, verse 5 says, we, let us ask from God the living, the giving one. Now, we have to change the word order a little bit to make it good English grammar. But we must not miss the point. God is the giving one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with us graciously give us all things? God will give us the wisdom we need. He's the giving God. The second ground for this confidence is that God is generous. The word used here for generous literally means single. As one author explains it, God gives with exclusive preoccupation. That is with his mind set upon this task as if there were nothing else to do. Such giving is a sight to behold. We often see it in new grandparents. When we used to go down to Florida, when Trisha lived down there, we would see all these shopping malls, all designed for seniors, for the 
snowbirds and the retirees. But in those malls, there were always several stores filled with wonderful and expensive children's gifts, though there are no children shopping there. But the store owners knew what they were doing. Grandparents lavish good things on their grandchildren. Can you imagine God being like that? In the middle of our trouble, we tend to think he's out to get us. He has to he set himself against us. But here he makes clear the real motive is to give to us with single-minded, exclusive preoccupation to give us all the wisdom we need. Father, forgive us for questioning your motives. And third thing here, verse 5, we learn that God gives without finding fault. The King James Version says he abradeth not. That's not a word we use. He doesn't find fault. Professor Robert Hybert explains it this way. He says he does not respond to our petition and then heap insults on us, on us for asking. He does not offensively recall the benefits already given or rebuke the applicant who asked for more. He does not give in a way which, which humiliates the receiver. He does not scold because we've inadequately used his former gifts or rebuke us for repeated, uh, uh, repeated uh, la uh, lack of wisdom. God's generosity is measured by what he designs, not by what we deserve. God will give us all the wisdom we need for he's a God of grace. So ask him. Ask him. That's the exhortation in verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, ask God. Folks, asking is the rule of the kingdom. God makes himself ready to help, but he requires asking. One of the greatest prayers in the whole Bible is the humble prayer of a young man named Solomon, who just became king, as he asked God for wisdom. Let me read some of, what he, of his request from 1 Kings 3. Solomon says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I'm only a little child. I do not know how to carry out my duties. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people. Of yours. And the Lord's reply. The Lord says since you have asked for this. And not for long life or wealth for yourself. And have not asked for the death of your enemies. Nor for but for discernment in administering justice. I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Oh, make no mistake. God promises. He will give all the wisdom you need. So ask. Ask. But as we ask, there's a second truth here. God expects committed faith. God expects committed faith. 
Now, commitment is difficult for us. None of us likes to commit ourselves too quickly or too deeply. We want to know exactly what we're in for and we want before we commit. But folks, commitment is not optional. I thought of a couple of examples where commitment is really important. At our house, we're baseball fans. We used to be Phillies fans. We moved out here and adopted the uh, Mariners. Not that it helped them any. <laughs> and like every baseball fan, I love home runs. I mean, really, in all of sports, what can compare with a walk-off Grand Slam home run? And since we moved here years ago and became Mariners fans, there have been two of the greatest home run hitters play on this team. Alex Rodriguez and Ken Griffey, number five and number seven on the all-time home run list. Wow. But you know what? Those guys struck out a lot. Between the two of them, they hit 1,326 career home runs. That's a lot of home runs. But during the same time, 1,326. But during the same time, the two of them struck out 4,044 times. That's more than three strikeouts for every home run. Now, why is that? Why do these home run hitters strike out? Because you cannot hit home runs with a check swing. That's why. If you're going to hit the ball out of the park, you must commit quickly and you must commit 100%. And if you miss, you got to strike out, not a home run. No one likes all or nothing commitments, but God expects committed faith. Another, another example of commitment that's precious to me, you know I had, I flew airplanes for a lot of my life. In the flying business, this is why they make long runways. We couldn't land on anything less than, take off land on anything less than 8,000 feet. We could get airborne in a couple of thousand feet. So the problem is not that it takes so long to get airborne. The problem is if something goes wrong, you got to have room to get it hauled in before you end up in a ball of fire in the end of the runway. Nobody likes to be so deeply committed as to just take off on a short runway. What if something goes wrong? We always want an escape route. We always want a safety net. We always want guarantees up front. We always want insurance that will reimburse if anything goes wrong. But greatness demands unconditional, single-minded Commitment at full speed ahead beyond the point of no return. And that's the kind of commitment that God is looking for. Such is the message of verse 6 to 8. Let me read it again. He must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of a sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. God here gives us two kinds of of commitment that God does not want. First of all, God does not want fad faith. This is a kind of doubting faith which resembles a cork bobbing on the ocean, up and down, over here, over there, driven by the wind one way and then another. Haven't you seen faith like that? Try this religion, try that religion, 
follow one guru, get another guru. Maybe I'll try Jesus. Oh, well, that didn't work out either. Or fad faith can even be there in, in Christian circles. Hop from new teacher to new teacher, from pet theology to another pet doctrine. And when decisions have to be made, we take an opinion poll to see what everybody wants to do, not what's right. Try some course of action, but when the going gets tough, we abandon it and do something else. That's not what God's looking for. That's fad faith. He wants committed faith. Fad faith is like trying to get airborne by taxiing around the airport. It's very safe, but you never fly. For you see, if you want to fly, you have to run up the engines to full speed and release the brakes and push forward as fast as you can to the end of the runway, knowing that either you will fly or you will crash. Hope you aren't playing this game with God. God has not put himself out there for us to poke around. And then decide whether he's what we're looking for or not. He's looking for committed faith. Faith that says, okay, Lord, here I am, body and soul, ready to believe anything you say and ready to do whatever you command, unconditionally committed. And sure enough, he will make his plans clear. Then there's a second kind of counterfeit faith here, two-faced faith. That's what's suggested by the word double-minded in verse 8. The point is God is not looking for faith that claims to trust God, but in reality is trusting myself. I can never read this passage without remembering a friend of mine back in New Jersey. He was a Eagles fan, and he liked to bet on football games. And he always impressed you by how much he had won or lost. I guess I'd probably known him for 10 years before, quite accidentally, I learned his secret. He bet on both sides. If he bet 100 bucks that Eagles were going to win, were going to win, he bet 100 bucks for somebody else that they were going to lose. And he was always either the big winner or the magnanimous loser. But in reality, he never committed a penny. He just was playing a game with his friends. And I fear that's what we do with the Lord. We make big commitments, big claims. We ask him for wisdom to do his will. But all the time we're making sure that we have an escape route. Some way we can handle it ourselves just in case God doesn't come through. Consequently, as we play it safe with God, talking commitment, but relying on ourselves, we never get off the ground. We never know what it is to soar to heights of fellowship and service with the Lord. We just taxi around lamely, trying to look like Christians who could fly if we wanted to. But folks, God doesn't play that game. He expects single-minded, committed, past the point of no return, nowhere else to go, all our eggs in one basket kind of faith. And interestingly, he uses trials of all sorts to bring us to that point. To close off every other option so that we have no escape route. And then he gives us These great promises of all the wisdom we need. But only in the context 
of total commitment. This morning I call you to completely entrust yourself to him. To honestly make this kind of commitment. Lord Jesus, here I am. Willing to know you and to serve you. Anytime. Anywhere. Doing anything you say. No exceptions. Amen. Years ago, Brian and Betty Vanderhoek, now missionaries in Taiwan, heard a sermon where I recommended such a prayer. He always referred to it when he talked to me. He referred to it as a scary prayer. Recently, I asked him about that, and here's what he said. We had recently sold our store, gone back to school, had a relatively new home, comfortable life, dear family and friends, but we were convicted to pray the scary prayer. And within weeks, we were packing up for the other side of the country. We prayed it again seven years later, and we ended up in Japan. Those were both unanticipated and not particularly welcome moves. But in retrospect, we can see how perfect these opportunities were for us. God expects committed faith. I love watching some of you young parents with your little children. I suspect there's nothing you would not do for them. You lavish your love on them. You take their little hands and guide them gently so they can do things that are beyond their abilities. But I also sometimes see you sweep up your children up over your head, and hang them by their heels and swing them around, and they squeal with glee. So how is it possible? Why are they not terrified with those kind of antics? Because they trust you unconditionally. And well, they should. You love them. But folks, does God love us any less? He simply wants that kind of unconditional trust from us. You see, we never outgrow being his little children. So no matter what he does with us, Squeal with glee. Or as I said earlier, count of pure joy. <laughs> Just trust him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do not have within us the capacity even to trust you like this. We need the work of your spirit to give us a heart to submit to Abandon our own plans and trust you for yours. We need you, Lord, to renew our hearts so that we would be willing to do what you ask us to do. But we thank you, Lord, that while we can be so fickle, that you are so faithful, that you absolutely give us all the wisdom that, that we need, and you show that you've been committed to us 
all the way to the cross. Help us, Lord, to live in light of these things that we've heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We normally have a confession of faith. Now, the creeds of the church are meant to, um, to, there, to be summaries of biblical truths that written to kind of clarify what the Bible says, to get it down to pithy statements that we can really understand. I could find no creed that talked about our text this morning. No creed that talked about God's guidance and, and everything. Instead, so instead of a creedal statement, we're going to read one of God's great promises of guidance. There are two of them that I know. There's this one, and there's one in Psalm 32, 8. It's better than, better than a catechism answer. This is what God says. Let's read it together. God, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Period. Let's sing. He leadeth me. Number 600.